Allegorical Life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of The Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan and as always, I'm here with Mark Croswell. By way of introduction for those of you who don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis security and emergency management for over 30 years. His experiences, both personal and professional, have taken him into the world of philosophy, often intersecting with the worlds of theology and mythology. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and, more importantly, the quality of our lives. Mark, it's really great to have you with us uh, again today, talking on the Allegorical Life podcast. Today we're talking about the idea of becoming familiar with anger and then choosing a wiser way to lead. And this idea comes from a recent piece that you've written on the Allegorical Life blog, where you've explained that you've been witnessing more harm than ever in the work environment. Uh, And as a senior executive, you've witnessed debates among leaders that descend quickly into verbal abuse, mockery, disrespect and dismissiveness. So I guess my first question to you today, Mark, what do you think is the reason that so many leaders are resorting to rough and tumble tactics to get perceived wins these days? I think for many leaders uh, and people in society more generally, um, the, the marketplace, the you know, the, the, the workplace, well, anywhere really, is so competitive. We're, we're so driven to compete, to be seen and to be heard and to be acknowledged. Um, and those things are really important in uh, people uh, to be acknowledged, not so much for what you do, but to be acknowledged for who you are and what you stand for, for example, is in fact fundamental to being human. And I think we live in a society where on one level we're being pushed to be individuals and to be individualised in our, you know, our thoughts and our actions and our morality and our values and so on and so forth. But in so doing, uh, we're in a sea of, of other individuals trying to do the same thing. And so this notion of competitiveness is, I think it's out of control. And um so people struggle to be acknowledged, and uh, and I think for for many people that beca- turns into a frustration. But I think the other reason, Jordan, is that, uh, I've, and I've watched this a lot in senior executive leadership and management. That uh, and, and it's, it's more it's more um, prevalent in men than women. I've got to say, but people can get pushed to the end or the edge of their knowledge uh, or their understanding, and and if you combine that with this need to be competitive. And this need to be, you know, an insistence upon competence and so on and so forth. That I think they panic, um, and I think, um, uh, and particularly for a male, that if you push a male to the end of to their limits, um, or a male feels as though they uh, they may look stupid, they can often react in quite unhelpful ways. And you know, we see this play out in society all the time. So I don't think any of this is particularly new, but. Uh, what I have noticed is that it seems to be a propensity for it to be rising and uh, and I find the whole thing really unhelpful. It's certainly not productive and, in fact, it, it's, it produces an enormous amount of harm for you know, people around them but also those uh, people themselves. So, so this notion of competition, individualism, having to succeed at all costs, um, being invulnerable, uh, so not showing vulnerability, not allowing one to show a vulnerability about absence of knowledge or absence of understanding or 
or even anything else that might be going on in their lives that day, which is causing them some grief internally, none of that is expressed uh, uh, or acknowledged or understood. They battle with it internally and then it manifests in terms of frustration and then it's externalised onto other people. And I feel for them on one level as a Buddhist, I can, I can see the suffering and suffering of mind and the anxieties and all that comes with it. But as a senior leader, uh, it's not acceptable just to sit there and say nothing or do nothing about it. And it's, it's why I decided to blog on it. I mean, and I've done very practical things in the workplace to, to try and stop it as well. But but it needs to be called out for what it is. So, so I've said this in other blogs, you know, anger is a part of being human. It's a natural emotion, but it's not a helpful one. Um, it, there's no benefit to anger. And I, I used to say this a lot when I taught um, Buddhist thought that, or formally at least, that, um, you know, there are, there are infinite reasons to get angry, uh, infinite reasons, but not one of them is a good one. Not one. So, so if you look at the harm that anger does um, to other people, if you look at the harm that anger does to the person who possesses it, um, there's no good reason ever to be angry. There are reasons to be angry, but they're not good reasons. And so I think for leaders, um, they've got to be intimately engaged and involved with how much anger is in their mind. It's not, not whether there is any, there is absolutely anger in the mind. The question is not if there is any, but how much anger is in the mind and how much of the world is having to experience that anger through projection or externalisation. And uh, if a leader doesn't tap into that and understand that that's how they're operating, then the harms that they produce for themselves and others is quite extraordinary. So, look, I, I don't want to make it a gender issue because I, I have seen it uh, with women as well. Um but I can speak as a male and I've operated in a very male-dominated environment for many, many years and uh, and I get very disappointed when I see colleagues of mine uh, at our age, in their mid-50s or even older, some of them, still navigating anger, still trying to deal with it and still operating through it in their leadership style or their, or their, their, their debating style or what have you and they still haven't taken on the fundamental lessons of how useless it really is and how, how, how damaging it is to their own reputations, but also to, um, uh, you know, to the harms that they produce for those people around them. Mark, what do you think these tactics inevitably lead to? Well, I think they think they're having a win, um, but it's quite the opposite. I mean, uh, you know, I said to my staff only this week that you, you, you'll never be remembered for what happened. You'll always be remembered for what you did about it. And so particularly in the corporate world and, and the, you know, the, upper, the top end of leadership, it's, you know, there are big issues and a lot of tensions and a lot of pressures and a lot of responsibility that comes with it. Um, but none of that's an excuse to get angry. But, but, you know, you might get the results. You might bully your way through and get the result. But that's not – people don't talk about the result. People talk about the behaviour. But, but the legacy you leave is not the win. The legacy you leave is the reputation. And, and I know of one particular person whose uh, contract is about to be terminated at a very, very senior level in an organisation because uh, of his inability to control his anger. Um, and he's at the end of his career and, and he's being terminated on that basis. And you think, what a sad way to end a 40-odd year career that, that you still haven't been able to navigate the very thing that causes us some of the greatest grief. So... Um, there's this wonderful saying in Eastern thought that, um, you know, anger, for, for, and again, it's reflective 
largely of men or males, but he will etch his anger in stone in his 20s. He will etch his anger in sand in his 40s, and hopefully he'll etch it in water by the time he hits 60. Um, in other words, hopefully he will he would have dispelled it all before he passes. So, so I, I am talking gender here. I don't I don't mean to because it's it's uh, it is universal. It exists in all of us, um, irrespective of our uh, you know religious, sexual orientation, or cultural background, or, or whatever. Um, it's not no one escapes the, uh, the the suffering or the constraints. But but what I'm witnessing at the moment is is, is particularly prevalent. Um, in, in the male-dominated um, population of which I operate in. And Mark, how did leaders choose and find that wiser path? Um, to get intimately involved with anger in your mind, there's no sense ignoring it. So the, the thing with anger is don't suppress it, don't ignore it, because it, it'll just pervade and perpetuate. And uh, it's, a, it's a bit like fire, really. Um, if you don't deal with a fire when it's small, it doesn't take too long before it's out of control. Uh, and then it's in control. And then it, it will do what it wants to do, and you know, whilst ever there's fuel available and the conditions are right to allow it to continue. So um, it's a really anger. I find a great metaphor for anger of the mind because it's got to be dealt with when it's small. So I'd always be on the lookout for it, um, and, and this goes to the heart of mindfulness, really. And I've spoken to this before in blogs, but um, mindfulness is not just about knowing where you're at and and getting deeply involved with that emotion that's arising. Mindfulness also says be cautious or be careful if that emotion is negative or if that emotion is non-virtuous, such as anger. And if it is, then that's the very time to be patient, uh, to be to be more compassionate or kinder. Um, and, and that might take some effort to be that way, but it's much better to put effort into being more patient than it is trying to deal with a rising anger. So if you don't have an antidote, uh, if you don't have something to quell it, uh, it will take over. So I think any leader really should be always cognizant of where they're at emotionally or mentally and understand you know, how much of that content is helpful and how much of that content is harmful and, and really understand the distinctions between the two. And anything in ethics, or particularly the virtue ethics, but ethics more broadly, will have an antithesis. It'll have the dark side to it. And I think the question for an ethical leader is to ha- how much of the how much of the darkness is, exists in your thoughts, words, and actions, and it's, it's there for everybody. It's not that it's not there, but be really mindful about it, really cognizant of it, and and act in a way that that um, ensures that that uh, negative negativity doesn't come forward. And I just think that's an obligation of any leader. You know, we all get frustrated, particularly at high stakes negotiations on public policy or contracts or large sums of money, you know, the stakes are high on one level and you can't take those things lightly. Um, but you get a better result if you... You still get a better result if you deal with them through a more virtuous mind. And, uh, for example, I often say to people, uh, you know, you can, in the right circumstance, you can exchange anger with assertiveness and assertiveness is a much wiser emotion. It's 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 principled, so you'll you'll draw a line in the sand around a principle. Um, uh, and Man, Nelson Mandela did this. He his principle uh, was freedom, and uh, and he would not compromise the principle of freedom, but he would he would absolutely negotiate the tactics to get there, or to achieve it. But he wasn't compromising 
on freedom. And so he started early in his life. He's very angry. And I said this in a previous blog. I think he was he was um, locked up in prison. Anger got him in a lot of trouble, a whole lot of trouble. And he ended up in prison for twenty seven years. But but he moved his anger to other things more beneficial. And one of those was to be very clear, unambiguous, and assertive where required. Uh, but not angry. And people can hear that. People can hear assertiveness. They can hear, uh, um, uh, you know, a lack of ambiguity. If people are very crystal clear about their principles, what they stand for and why they stand for them, uh, they may not agree, but they can hear it. And and you're a long way ahead if you can get that message across. But if you speak through anger, it doesn't matter what words you use. If you're angry, people will hear the anger long before they hear the words. And um, and that tends to be how we're remembered, you know, by by how angry we were about something. So, so I'd be for any leader of at any level, you know, whether they're formal or informal, um, you know, implied or explicit in leadership, I would always exercise great caution about anger and say, look, every time that rises, every time, take a better path, you know. And if you can't, you're probably better off saying nothing. <laughs> You'd probably better off not saying anything and, and, and just be humble enough to say nothing and, and maybe because it may well be that you don't know the answer to something uh, or that or people are talking in a way that you don't understand. It could be using a lot of acronyms or a lot of technical language or a lot of complexity and method and maybe it's okay that you don't know and you don't have to pretend that you do and get angry when you're caught out. So, so I, I think out of all of the great skills of leadership, one of the greatest skills is to is to make sure that anger never dominates, um, never pervades, nor perpetuates into your negotiations or your discussions or your arguments. Because if it does, that's what people will remember you by, not by your win, not not by what you manage to get out of the corporate boardroom, or what you manage to get out of the you know the the uh, the, the meeting room with your with your adversaries or your counterparts from another jurisdiction or whatever the case might be. You don't get remembered for that. You get remembered for your behaviour and how you achieved it. You're listening to the Allegorical Life Podcast. Now, Mark, you've just touched on Nelson Mandela and you also wrote about him in your blog post. Tell us more about the decision around anger that he had to make when he left prison. So Mandela had to make a very clear decision when he walked out of the gates of Robben Island and the prison for which he was incarcerated for most of those 27 years. And and the decision was this. He knew he had to leave anger behind the prison wall uh, because if he didn't, he knew that that, that same anger would, would continue to imprison him for the rest of his life. And he understood that, that it had to be left behind. And he left it behind and he left the prison with a mind that was, was more forgiving, was more compassionate, where necessary, more assertive, um, uh, more generous, uh, you know, all, all of the great ethics of virtue. He had, he had um, um, formulated those in his mind, he had cultivated them, uh, and he was prepared to operate and practice through them. And he did. And he led a country, you know, potentially heading rapidly down the road of civil disturbance and potentially civil war and a lot of violence and destruction, and he took it to a far more peaceful place. Now, not initially, of course, they did. There was a lot of uh, a lot of harm and violence on the streets when he was released, as they were moving towards elections. But he was able to navigate it away from that space into something more peaceful. 
uh, and he ultimately did achieve the political freedom for his country. And so w- without that ethical premise in his mind, and it was in his mind, it couldn't be anywhere else, he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't have been able to lead that way and achieve those things. So, and those things, of, those attributes of mind around virtue are, are very attractive to people. Those leaders who hold those things in a genuine way with great authenticity and sincerity, people will follow them to the ends of the earth. Um, we saw that with Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand just recently, you know, the last uh, post that we did uh, a month ago. And so there's many examples of, you know, operating through these virtues, how powerful they are, and they're available to any leader if they're prepared to work on them, if they're prepared to bring them forward and make them, a, you know, a central part of their leadership and a central part of their thought process, then they can be equally as inspiring within the world in which they operate as some of these great leaders which the world literally has noticed. So so Mandela's um, story of walking out of that prison gate and leaving anger behind the wall of the prison on the basis that he understood that it would continue to imprison him if he didn't is a very strong message for any leader to say, just be cautious because your anger is imprisoning you in a world of hurt and suffering uh, and it will perpetuate to hurt and cause others to suffer as well if you don't deal with it. Thanks for joining us today on The Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying our podcast, you might like to add a review on iTunes and that'll help other people find us as well. Thank you and we hope to have you with us again soon.